Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are back in the series on the prophets, and here we'll be discussing Daniel chapter 9, and this will be the first of two episodes in that chapter. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 9. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. Jeff Myers, our other regular contributor to the podcast, is busy uh, speaking at a conference in Huntsville, Alabama this week, and so he will not be joining us in this episode or the next episode, which we record the same day. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background, making sure that everything is running properly, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out for you. Welcome back, I should say, to the Theopolis Podcast. We've been on a hiatus for the last several weeks. Uh, It was a busy month of July at Theopolis. We had a uh, board meeting in the middle of the month, which was quickly followed by our first Theopolitan Ministry Conference. And then as soon as that was over, we had 13 fellows in our 2021-2022 fellows program come to Birmingham for a week and a half of uh, instruction and worship and fellowship, eating, drinking. So we've had a, a busy few weeks. In the meantime, we were able to post several of the talks from our Theopolitan Ministry Conference. The ones that we've posted are mainly from men who have been through our fellows program. Uh, and I hope that you enjoyed those. We were very pleased with uh, the outcome of that conference and the the performance of our former students. They, uh, they all did uh, uh, great presentations, I think very informative and and really helpful for theologically helpful, but also helpful in practical ministry. So I, I trust that you were edified and blessed by those. And uh, welcome back to the regular podcast that we're getting, uh, getting back to the book of Daniel. Before I, before I introduce and uh, remind you where we are in the book of Daniel, I do have one other small bit of business. This is coming from my youngest daughter, Garnett. She asked me to name a friend of hers, Osborne Doolittle, who apparently is a great fan of Theopolis and listens to the podcast and would be thrilled to have his name in the podcast. So there it is, Osborne. Uh, we hope you get to listen to it. I should say we're not going to do this for everybody who asks us to put their name in the podcast, but it came at a request from my daughter. So I figure I should do that to maintain smooth relations with my youngest daughter. Uh, we are in the middle of a podcast series on the book of Daniel. Uh, we have gone through the first eight chapters of Daniel, and this week and next we will be in Daniel 9. Uh, This is uh, in the latter part of Daniel, of course. Uh, Daniel is 12 chapters long, and we're in the home stretch, as it were. One of the obvious structures of the book of Daniel is the distinction between, uh, the linguistic distinction between uh, the opening chapter of Daniel, which is in Hebrew, and then uh, chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then beginning in chapter 8, you go back to Hebrew. And that linguistic distinction, that linguistic difference uh, in those chapters marks out a distinction of emphasis. Uh, the the uh, uh, stories and visions of Daniel 2 through 7 are concerned with Daniel's activities within the Gentile empires, where Aramaic would have been the lingua franca of the day. Um, and uh, they, of course, have to do with Jews in those imperial and Gentile settings, but the larger setting is uh, is not uh, Israel, but rather 
it's the international setting of the what uh, at Theopolis we call the Oikumene, the uh, in, imperial system that that God has established during and after the exile, leading up to the coming of Jesus. When you get back to the Hebrew sections, beginning in chapter eight, your uh, the the topic and the and the and the um, the substance of the of the visions changes, and we have more of a focus on what's happening to Israel and what will be happening to Israel in the coming century, decades and centuries. The latter part of Daniel from Daniel 9 through 12, uh, Daniel 8 through 12 rather, is one of the places in, in the Old Testament that we actually have prophecy of the kind that people generally think of as prophecy, that is foreseeing a distant future. A lot of the prophetic books that we have in the Old Testament don't include that kind of uh, long-term foresight of the distant future. They're often uh, addressing much more imminent events and situations and predicting a much more, not a distant future, but a near future. But uh, Daniel 8 through 12 is talking about the distant future and really filling out the entire period from Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon on through the end of the uh, end of the age and the coming of the Messiah. The Hebrew section here has uh, two visions that are set in Belshazzar's reign. We've looked at those in chapters 7 and 8. Uh, that's still in the Babylonian system. Uh, uh, Daniel moves backward in time. The narrative moves ahead in chapter 6, moves ahead to the Persian Empire. But then when the visions begin in chapter 7 and 8, we're back in Belshazzar's reign. Uh, and then uh, chapters 9 through 12 have two additional visions, both set in the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and we seem to have, I think we seem to have a kind of alternation between general visions of the period from the Persian Empire through the coming of the Messiah, uh, and then more specific visions of what's happening to Israel during that time. Uh, chapter 7 is uh, giving this big framework of the four kingdoms, pictured as four beasts that are coming up out of the sea. There's some events that specifically have to do with Israel, but you have this big vision of the four the four empires and then the fifth monarchy of the Son of Man. And then chapter 8 focuses in more specifically on things that are going to happen within that period to Israel. And then we go through the same kind of cycle again. Chapter 9 gives us, especially at the end of chapter 9, gives us this big picture vision of what's going to happen between the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the time of the Messiah. Uh, in this opaque vision of the 70 weeks at the end of Daniel 9. And then in chapters 10 through 12, we have more specific visions of what's going to happen within Israel and all the the contests for the beautiful land, as it's called in those chapters, uh, what's going to happen uh, as Gentiles are fighting over control of Israel. So we have that movement from general to specific uh, twice over in these chapters. Uh, chapter 9 in particular is uh, pretty neatly divided into uh, three sections. Uh, the first 19 verses include a long prayer of Daniel, one of the longest prayers in the Bible, uh, a prayer of supplication, a plea for forgiveness, a plea for God to restore Jerusalem and to restore the people of God. In verses 20 through 23, we have the appearance of Gabriel, the angel, who reassures Daniel and then announces that he's going to give him a vision. And then in verses 24 through 27, we have the vision that, that Gabriel communicates, which is the vision of the 70 weeks. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the prayer of Daniel. And after some introductory verses in verses 1 through 3, the prayer itself kind of divides up. A simple way to divide it up is to uh, look at the grammar. Uh, the first part of the prayer is addressed to uh, Adonai, the Lord, sometimes to Yahweh, in uh, second person, that is, Daniel is addressing him as you directly. 
and uh, that th- goes through about verse 10. And then beginning in verse uh, middle of verse 10 and on through verse uh, 13, um, or 14 rather, uh, you have third person. Daniel is still addressing the Lord, but he's speaking about the Lord in the third person, he and him, and what the Lord has done for Israel uh, and uh, why the calamities have come on Israel. And then beginning in verse 15, we're back to the second person as Daniel turns now, now not so much to a confession of sin, but as to a plea to God to show favor to Israel and to restore the city and the people. And the people. So we have that basic division and grammar from second person to third person, back to second person. And that concludes which, with this kind of ecstatic, very, uh, as uh, James B. John in a paper on Daniel 9 calls it a staccato prayer, these quick, uh, these quick petitions that the Lord would listen and hear and see and answer. So that's the that's the overall um, a, a simple overall structure of the prayer. That's what we're going to be focusing on today is the first nineteen verses of Daniel nine. The prayer is itself is provoked by reflection upon the prophecy of Jeremiah and the statement in chapter twenty five verses eight to twelve that the nations will serve the king of Babylon for seventy years. Elsewhere, we have similar statements in chapter 29 verse 10 um 70 years being completed for babylon and the lord will bring them back to their place at that point and then you have a similar statement at the end of second chronicles chapter 36 again referring to the prophecy by the mouth of jeremiah and then in that case it's about the land enjoying its sabbaths it seems that there is something um we could maybe think about a question, what is the 70 years referring to? In Jeremiah, it's very much seeming to refer to the dominance of Babylon in the region. In the case of Second Chronicles, it seems to relate more to the land and the Sabbaths that it will enjoy. Yeah, that's a, that's a disputed point, of course, is where, where, where do we start the 70 years of exile or, or the 70 years? What is it numbering? What is the beginning and end point for for that uh, prophecy? Yeah, if if I could recall what what I've thought about it in the past, um, I mean, it strikes me as clear that um, in Jeremiah, the seventy years are primarily to do with Babylon's um, dominance over the ancient Near East as, as a whole, and um, I think that basically things like the end of Two Chronicles, um, when it talks about the land lying, uh, lying fallow, you know, keeping Sabbath until the end of seventy years. I think it's quite plausible to read that as saying it remained desolate until the seventy years of Babylon had ended, rather than having to read it as it remained desolate for a seventy-year period. Um, so I, I'm personally very happy to just to say there is one 70 year period um involved in scripture which is babylon's dominion from kind of 609 um bc through through to 539 bc when when she falls yeah there there are obviously other ways to to take that and there've been uh attempts to link it up with the problem of course is that if you take the 70 years as the as beginning with the fall of jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of the city and of the temple. There's not 70 years between that event and the end of the Babylonian Empire and the release of Israel from captivity. 
uh, that doesn't that takes up more something more like fifty years rather than the seventy years. And so the, there have been efforts to try to make this the, to try to explain the seventy years as this as a seventy years of exile, but extend it backwards to maybe the death of Josiah. That's one suggestion that uh, Josiah is already operating kind of as a vassal of Babylon at his uh, or or Israel comes under the dominance of Babylon after Josiah's death. Even though they're not yet in exile, there's still the seventy the seventy years of Babylon's hegemony in the ancient Near East corresponds to a period in which Israel is under or Judah rather is under the hegemony of Babylon. So that's that's one way to do it. But I think so. The the beginning point of the seventy years is disputed. I think the end point is pretty clear that the end of Babylon corresponds to the release of Israel from exile. That's what Jeremiah talks about, and that's what that's what Daniel's picking up. Wherever the seventy years begins, he knows that once once Babylon drinks the cup of the Lord, the cup of the Lord's wrath, as Jeremiah twenty five says, then that's the, going to be the time for the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of the people of Judah. So uh, that's that that end point is what he's looking at, whatever the whatever the beginning might be. And there are a number of candidates, so we could think about the destruction of Nineveh, I think six twelve BC, and then the final. D- defeat of Assyria in 609 or the Battle of Carchemish in um, 605 BC, um, which is a very key date, certainly within the book of Jeremiah. And so there will be some natural points for dating the hegemony of of Babylon. Right. I mean, it's not clear to me personally that the 70 years ever refers to exile, i.e. that you ever get this idea of a 70-year exile. Um, so, I mean, I, I know that's disputed. I mean, I think probably if you do think there's a 70-year exile, you would have to get it from Daniel 9 or 2 Chronicles 36. Um, but, I mean, do, do, is that how you guys are reading those particular texts? I think it's – I don't see a reference to exile as the 70 years. I think it's very much about Babylon. Right, right. Right, but but the uh, I think that's probably right. But I think the Jeremiah twenty nine ten thus says the Lord when seventy years have been completed for Babylon. So that's making your point, James, that it's a seventy year period of Babylon Babylonian dominance. But the end of Babylon means as 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 Jeremiah continues, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So even if the period is naming the period of Babylonian dominance then the end of that Babylonian dominance corresponds to the time when uh, Israel should be going back from exile into the land. So that, and so that again, it's that end point that, that Daniel's focusing on. And I think that the other, uh, the other thing that kind of within Daniel nine, that seems to fit with what you're saying, James, is that you have the 70 year period at the beginning of the chapter that Daniel is uh, looking at the end of that period. And then he's told that there's going to be an additional 70 period of time. That's the last vision, which is going to be a period of continuing, a kind of continuing exile, continuing Gentile dominance um, that leads up, uh, I think, until the coming of the Messiah of the Christ. So um, the the correspondence of those two periods of time suggests that we're talking Gentile numbers. I mean, the number 70 is a Gentile number by itself. So we're talking Gentile periods of time, the Babylon period of time, and then the larger Gentile period of time, the times of the Gentiles, they're going to stretch on past Babylon. Uh, even though Israel is going back to the land, it's going to, this this uh, period of the Gentiles are going to stretch beyond the Babylonian Empire 
through to these other empires that have already been introduced in Daniel. Right. A related connection we could maybe make is uh, that which involves Nebuchadnezzar's um, seven times of desolation, perhaps you could call them, seven times ousted from his kingdom back in chapter four. And I wonder if we're meant to uh, kind of process what's going on here in in light of that. It's, um, it's an interesting thing in that Israel seemed to undergo this 70 weeks, which kind of ends in um, restoration in, in some way. Um, although just as as is the, the case in chapter 4, it's rather understated in terms of whether there's repentance or anything like that. We noted in chapter 4 that it's just very under-described. Nebuchadnezzar kind of raises his eyes heavenwards and, and, and then he's restored. And I wonder if there's something uh, to learn about chapter 9 from that. Mm. Yeah. You might also think about chapter 6, which occurs in the same year, where there is in the deliverance from lion's den a symbol of deliverance from exile. Yeah, right. One of the questions I had about the beginning of chapter 9 is the just the way that Daniel introduces Darius or Darius, the uh, elaborate way that he introduces him. We've already we've already met this character. Presumably, it's the same guy that's introduced at the end of uh, chapter five, taking over after Belshazzar, and he's the emperor in chapter six. But then he's now given his father is named, who hasn't been named before. He's described as being of Median descent. That's we already know that from the previous chapter. And then it goes on to say that he's king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, and then repeats again that it's in the first year of his reign that Daniel uh, begins reading the book. So the the elaborateness of that introduction of uh, uh, of Darius is is curious to me. And I wondered if you had any either of you had any thoughts on why why Daniel would go into so much detail about a character that's already been in, introduced into the into the text. I suppose one thing what might be going on is it might be trying to background this 62-year period, which is associated with Darius. Um, obviously, we're going to read about 62 weeks later on, and I wonder if part of what's going on has to do with that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the, Darius is 62 when he takes over Babylon. We, we're not That's not repeated here in Chapter 9, but we know that from the end of Chapter 5, and so that puts this prayer in a in the 62, 62nd year of the particular king that's, that's reigning at the time. So, yeah, the correspondence with the vision that comes later. I think it's also quite interesting, uh, you know, there's a, an important, uh, a important um, practical import to this, that uh, Daniel is reading in, the books of, reading in the books of Jeremiah. He sees something that is prophesied that he thinks this should be fulfilled. It's either should have been fulfilled already or should be fulfilled soon, because if the 70 years are the period of Babylonian rule, Babylon is gone, because the kingdom of Chaldeans has now been given into the hands of a Mede. The Chaldean kingdom is gone, and yet Jerusalem is not yet restored, and the people are not yet released. And so he sees this prophecy in the book, and instead of uh, assuming that it's going to be fulfilled because he's confident in the word of the Lord being fulfilled, he immediately goes from the book to a prayer. So the, the promise and the prophecy is not a, is not a reason to be complacent or uh, silent before the Lord. In fact, it, it's the reason, it's the, it gives him the confidence, the energy to go ahead and pray and pray with, with, uh, with great um, 
with great passion for the Lord to do what he's promised to do. So you have that you have that combination of the Lord's word. He's praying according to the will of God or according to the word of God, rooted in God's prophecy or God's promise and God's word and asking the Lord to fulfill what he's promised to do. Uh, he's also it takes on this kind of, he puts himself, he fasts, removes himself from food, puts on sackcloth. He takes off whatever, whatever official garments he has. He puts on sackcloth, which is a kind of, it's a kind of symbolic death. It's a it's a deglorification. He puts ashes on his head. He's entering into a kind of symbolic death and appealing to God from the grave, as it were, embodying the exile in his in his demeanor and clothing, uh, and then presenting his petitions to the Lord in that in that condition. Hmm. So also important to consider the way in which prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, their ministries were overlapping, and they also make reference to each other at various points. Daniel is referenced in Ezekiel, and here we have Daniel referencing Jeremiah. And it's it's easy to see these books as just detached from each other, things that have come down to us, without actually thinking about the way that they would have been interacting. And these different communities would have, I mean, Jeremiah ended up in Egypt. Um, You have Daniel and Ezekiel both ending ending up in Babylon, and we should presume that they knew of each other, read each other, and there was even communication between them. Right. I mean, I was thinking something along similar lines in terms of this reference in verse 2 to um, the books. Um, so uh, I guess it's natural for us to just think of Daniel reaching up to his top shelf and, and getting a Bible down, you know, but the <laughs> actual term sparim is often used of letters, actually. This is sort of something I'd like to look into a bit more, but um, I'm pretty sure when um, uh, Ahab's wife, what's, what's her name, Jezebel sends out letters, it's, it's the sparim that she sort of sends out across the land. And we know that Jeremiah sent various letters to people in Babylon, and it, I guess it wouldn't be surprising to me if if there were all sorts of things like this that daniel had kept and and uh you know sort of compiled somewhere and studied regularly i mean um true prophets were the minority in those days as they were most of israel's history i guess and so daniel ezekiel jeremiah you would think that these were guys who would listen to one another because they were some of the few people speaking truth out there at the time yeah, and uh, it fits with uh, Je- Jeremiah 29, which is one of the places that refers specifically to the 70, 70 years that we've been talking about. Uh, that's introduced in Jeremiah 20, 29.1 as the words of the letter which Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders in exile, the priests, prophets, and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So if this is a collection of letters rather than the complete book of Jeremiah, something like Jeremiah 29 would be in there and uh, would be the source of Daniel's expectation that uh, his source of his information about the length of Babylon's dominance. Right. That's that's interesting. I mean, it's the same terms of sefer that's used there for letter, but obviously the fact that it's it's something which is sent has led people to translate it as as letter. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, I guess that term just covers a huge number of different written forms. Right. And I mean, just think about this realistically. Who is who is Jeremiah going to send a letter to? Um, 
it, you know, Daniel's one of the leading figures in Babylon. If, if Jeremiah is sending a letter to Babylon, it's going to get to Daniel if it's not directly addressed to him. We have a reference to the letter being sent in the colophon at the end of chapter 51 of Jeremiah that he commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, and he went to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Babylon. Right. Well, went with Zedekiah to Babylon. I'm sure I've thought about this before, but I can't remember what, what conclusion I, I came to. Um, is there a way of knowing if this comes before or after um, chapter 6, the, the lion's den experience? I, I don't see any way to know because the, the, that story is not dated. You might take it as an immediate, immediately subsequent to uh, the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5 says Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And then chapter 6, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps. If it happens immediately, then it could be in the same year. Uh, but that the process of appointing 120 satraps would seem to be a, that'd be take some time. And then for that to develop and for pe- for the uh, Daniel's enemies to try to trap him, that whole plot seems to be uh, something that would take, I mean, doesn't have to take more than a few months, but it, it it's uh, it's not clear to me that it's in the immediate aftermath of Darius's conquest of Babylon. It seems it seems like this vision could have taken place before that event, in other words. Right, right. I mean, either way, this is surely the kind of prayer that we're meant to see Daniel as making in the heat of chapter ah, six, yes. which, which would seem to like emphasize its importance. You know, I mean, th- th- this is why it was important for them to have a, a, a priestly figure like Daniel continuing to intercede on on behalf of the nation you know i mean it it would be obviously really cool if this whole vision came to him in one of those times when he was praying with his window open um sort of in in, yeah in chapter six yeah and at theopolis if something is cool it's true so we're going to say that this is in fact (laughs) one of the prayers that daniel prayed out his open window the other the other thing that that adds I, i had noticed as i was reading through the prayer several times the last week uh, how much this has in common with uh, Solomon's original prayer at the temple, the dedication prayer, where he's praying that uh, those who pray toward the temple would be heard. And particularly at the end of Daniel's prayer, he he asked the Lord to incline his eye, his ear and hear, open his eyes and see the desolation of the city. That's exactly the kind of petition that Solomon presents. Let your ears be open to the prayers that are directed to this house. Let your eyes be open. And the Lord says, my ears and my eyes will be open toward this house. But the whole prayer is premised on the the, the temple as the as the kind of exchange point where prayers are going where prayers are directed, and the Lord promises to be attentive to that. And so He, the God of heaven, will hear what's prayed toward the house. But if you know, if we put this back in Daniel six, the context of Daniel six, where Daniel's opening his windows toward Jerusalem. And he's actually offering this prayer, which we, we know that this is true now because it's cool. So he's offering this prayer toward <laughs> toward the temple. If that's right, then that uh, that just enhances the connection with with First Kings eight, which I think the connection with First Kings eight is there already in any case. But uh, that would enhance it further. And as an interesting dimension, that if Daniel is praying this toward Jerusalem, he's directing a prayer toward a ruined temple. And he expects the Lord to mm. be able to hear and to see. Um, in fact, he, he directs the Lord's attention, verse 18, to the desolations of the city, see the ruined temple. But he expects the, the temple still to play something like the role that 
that uh, Solomon had asked it to play. And that also connects with the fact that it occurs, or the visitation of Gabriel occurs at the time of the evening sacrifice later on. Mm -hmm. Right. It is connected with the temple worship. I think you also see some of the background that he's appealing to in Leviticus chapter 26 in verses 40 to 45, and the promise that if they confess their iniquity and, and the iniquity of their fathers and are humble, then the Lord will remember the covenant, restore them to the land, even when they're in the land of their enemies, he won't spurn them, and he will restore them. Right, and Leviticus 26 is full of these kind of descriptions of um, a sevenfold punishment and the like, isn't it, and um, uh, and desolation coming upon the land. And so there's lots of vocab overlap with um, chapter 9 here. Mm-hmm. And in the immediate vicinity of Leviticus 26 is the uh, comm- the rules about Sabbath years. Leviticus 25 is uh, begins with a section about Sabbath years, and then it has an extended instructions about the uh, jubilee year uh, which is uh, i think hmm. p- part of the part of the background of the 70 year period and then the 70 week period that we're seeing in daniel 9 these are sabbatical periods um and um although s- 70 years is not the is not the cycle for a jubilee the return from exile is in fact a real jubilee and if you if you uh, take the 70 years as Babylonian hegemony rather than the time of the exile and look at the exile from the destruction of the temple until Cyrus's decree, you have uh, a basically a, a jubilee cycle and then the people return to the land. So there's a very, a, a seems to be a quite literal fulfillment after seven cycles, seven Sabbath cycles. And then the jubilee is that uh, those who've been cast out of the land are going to return. And then you have going to have the larger uh, cycle the 70 weeks cycle uh, in the at the end of the chapter, which will presumably lead to an even greater jubilee, uh, an even greater return to the land. Huh. The structure of the prayer that Daniel prays is uh, it's premised on a kind of uh, stark contrasts between the Lord and his faithfulness and Israel's sin. And that's that, that uh, stark contrast is introduced right at the beginning of the prayer where he speaks of God as keeping covenant, loving kindness to those love him and keep his commandments. He talks, he uh, addresses God as the righteous God, uh, as the one who uh, is uh, uh, confirms his word. But the blame for Israel's condition, Daniel says, is all on Israel uh, because of their sins. Uh, there's a uh, verses six, five and six has this uh, extended list of descriptions of their sinfulness. They've sinned, they've committed iniquity, wicked, wickedness, rebellion, They've turned from the commandments. They haven't listened to the prophets. Um, that's all on them, not on God. It's not. It's not because of uh, Yahweh's unfaithfulness or failure that Israel is in exile. In fact, in fact, Daniel's going to say the opposite. He's confirming his word and confirming his oath by sending Israel into exile and bringing these calamities. Uh, and it's it's also interesting. He he doesn't he doesn't. Um, um, he doesn't uh, excuse any sector of Israel from blame. Uh, verse six says that the prophets spoke to the kings, princes, fathers, and people of the land. That's pretty much everybody. Uh, so everybody refused to hear the prophets. Uh, and then in the following verse, um, shame comes on not just on those who are in the land, but are those who those who are scattered. So there's uh, 
all Israel in all places of all classes, they're all, they all have sinned. They've all committed iniquity. They're all to blame where uh, the Lord has been faithful and righteous and has kept his, kept his covenant without fail. Right. It's quite pointed, isn't it, that what um, Daniel appeals to isn't the Lord's righteousness. Um, he says that actually the Lord has been righteous in judging Judah, um, but he, he appeals more explicitly to God's mercy. Um, I'm trying to find particularly the verse that I want, but uh, uh, 18, as in we, we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your your great mercy. And, and so there's a... Um, uh, very sort of specific way in which Daniel addresses God's character and God's various attributes in, in this prayer. And the possessive pronouns, I think, are very important. It's your people, your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Um, the Lord has placed his name upon his people and his honour is seen in the way that he made a name for himself through bringing the people, your people, out of the land of Egypt. And so his deliverance of his people is... It's about his great name. It's, they're spiritually bankrupt, but it will be on the basis of the Lord's commitment to the honour of his name that they will be restored. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, Very, really good point. And I, I think there's a there seems to be some kind of, I don't want to call it a rhetorical trick, but there's a rhetorical shift in the, in the course of the prayer. Uh, when Daniel first introduces shame, he says that hmm. it's, it's the people of God who are shamed. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers. That's in verse 8. Um, shame of face. That's, verse 7 is the first time he uses that phrase. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, op- uh, uh, shame of face, as it is this day. So the, he's, he's saying the shame and the reproach is Israel's shame and reproach. And uh, among other things, that surely means the shame and reproach that they have among the nations. They're going to be looked uh, looked as looked on as uh, as um, uh, unclean things as, as rejected things in the nations but then in the second when he returns to the second person in verse 15 now he begins talking about the reproach that is not just on Israel but the reproach that will uh, it's it can um, the uh, it's as, as Alistair was saying it's your people in your city that have become a reproach so the shame that is on Israel, actually does have some kind of Yahweh has some kind of stake in that um, his his mm-hmm. reputation is at stake in the reproach of Israel and so there's this kind of shift from admitting the shame but then asking the basis for asking the Lord to intervene is that this shame that we're bearing is um, is is kind of um, reflected back on you because you've identified with us you've identified with this people and with this land and with this and with this city. Right, and and this ties in with some of Daniel's contemporaries, doesn't it? So, um, Alistair mentioned Ezekiel, and there in, um, I think it's chapter uh, 36, God says very explicitly, it's not for your sake, um, oh Israel, that I'm I'm about to act to restore you, um, but for the sake of my holy name, um, which you have profaned among the nations. um, And so God acts to kind of vindicate his holiness in 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 the eyes of the nations um very explicitly there in in ezekiel right right there's several references to events uh surrounding the exodus and um maybe i'm imagining this but it it feels to me like he's the prayer sort of moves backwards through the book of exodus 
Daniel is playing a kind of mosaic role here, uh, pleading on behalf of the people. And he appeals to God in terms of uh, his loving kindness, his faithfulness to his covenant for those who love him and keep his commandments. Um, that's language that is at least partly drawn from uh, the revelation of the glory to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's that's early on in the prayer. That's verse four and five. Now, there's an explicit reference to the law of Moses in verse 11 uh, and then again in verse 13. So it looks like we're moving from kind of Exodus 34, Moses on the mountain by himself before the Lord to the delivery of the law. Uh, there's a, a couple of references to the holy mountain or the holy hill, which in context refer to Jerusalem, but that also is a is an appropriate description of Sinai. Uh, and then there's uh, when he begins the last part of the prayer in verse 15, there's an explicit reference to the Exodus. Um, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. He's basically asking the Lord to do again what he did for his people in, uh, in Egypt. But it seems like you're kind of moving from Moses before the Lord to uh, the Moses as the law, the one who delivers the law to Moses as the one who leads the people out in Exodus. You seem to be moving kind of in reverse order through the book of book of Exodus. Hmm. Am I imagining that? (laughs) (laughs) No, it, it, it makes sense to me. And, and obviously that underlying logic of um, Daniel's prayer is echoed by Moses in the golden calf incident, isn't it? You know, why should the nations um, look upon Israel and think that you've, acted badly and, and 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 so forth you know right uh, if, if 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 god destroys them that is yeah i can't help but be hugely impressed by daniel as an individual you know he is clearly an incredibly educated guy and he's risen to the top of babylon's ranks um obviously due to the lord's hand on him but at the, at the same time um because he's learning you know his wisdom has exceeded everyone else um in babylon and yet he's not this sort of cold emotionless um figure you know at the end of the last chapter's vision he was um i can't remember if he was sick or or he he was certainly extremely um troubled by it all and he he has strong emotional responses which obviously the lord wants us to have i mean if if we think back to ezekiel again you know god looked for people who who would sigh and would be grieved by what was going on uh, among the jewish people and daniel is is one of those people here he he's grieved and from that kind of yearning of his his heart is obviously the the backdrop to this very emotional prayer in in chapter nine so daniel just comes across as a hugely well-rounded um individual to me Mm mm-hmm We've already remarked upon the way that he prays on the basis of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And it's always fascinated me the way that the Lord wants us to present present arguments to him on the basis of his word and his promises. And so whether you're reading um, the prayer of Moses for the intercession of Moses for the people, where there's a number of different stages where he's making this drawn out argument to the Lord in a number of different phases, or something like this, where you have a way of approaching the Lord on the basis of what he has said, his purposes, his commitment to his people, all these sorts of things. It seems that we're supposed to not just come to God and tell him what we want, but 
we're supposed to wrestle with him on the basis of the strength that and the purchase that he has given us in his promises and in his character. Yeah, very good point. Right. I wonder if we could talk a little bit just about how this um, how this reference to Jeremiah should uh, affect our view of, kind of Old Testament prophecy generally. So the 70 years is associated in Jeremiah with a, a return and a return of the remnant and them seeking after um, the Lord with all their heart. And Daniel certainly is someone who seeks after the Lord with, with all his, his heart here at the end of the um, 70 years. But in Jeremiah, that seems to blend in fairly seamlessly just into uh, a golden age for Israel, um, and which obviously didn't come to pass um, in 539 BC at least. And, and so what, what do you think we should be taking um, from Daniel 9 in terms of our interpretation of Jeremiah? Should we see the restoration uh, prophecies there as kind of partially fulfilled in the return from from Israel and then more fully fulfilled at the end of the 70 weeks or or some other view? Certainly when we're thinking about the promises of the new covenant in places like chapter 31 of Jeremiah, we do see ways that that refers to the initial return, but also Christ and the apostles can relate it to what comes through the ministry of Christ. And then we can see even beyond that, it relates to the new heavens and the new earth. It, so there's a sort of telescoping character to that prophecy. Right, which Daniel almost fills in the, the links between. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, the, the other comment I would make is that uh, we can sometimes underestimate the glories of the restoration Um the, the mere fact that they, the, that they were preserved for through their time of exile, uh, the fact that they were able to return to their land and rebuild their city and rebuild the, the temple and gain a certain kind of stature in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, that's a, an achievement. Besides that, I, I think that there's a, that's a remarkable achievement that you could have a people that would pr- be preserved and be able to be restored in that way. And, and I also think that the, the prophecies about Israel's uh, Israel's relationship to the Gentiles, Israel's um, being a light to the Gentiles—that's part of the part of the image of restoration in various profess, uh, prophetic books. When uh, Zion is restored, it'll become the destination point for the pilgrimage of the nations. And again, I think we we can underestimate how much that is happening during the during the period between the exile and and the and the coming of Christ. That's not a period of stasis or a period when Israel is just enclosed on itself, but there, many of them are still scattered throughout the, throughout the Mediterranean world, and they're having, they're having some kind of effect on the world around them. It's not uh, everything that the prophets promised. I, I, agree, with, I agree with Alistair that the, about the, the idea that there's a telescoping effect, but I think we can, we're on the other side and, and minimize the the fulfillment within the restoration period, which I think is substantial. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's all the more remarkable that Israel retained an, a, a national identity when you think of the pressures of anti-Semitism, which we see in Esther and at certain points here in, in Daniel. And so despite external pressures to 
want to dissolve and become kind of uh, anonymous and part of some amorphous mass you know um there is this retaining of, of identity yeah right and and even more overt pressure when you get to the maccabean period uh and a and a forced hellenization mm. you know and then the 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 cool thing to do would be just to go along with that pressure and to become hellenized some jews do that but uh, there's still this faithfulness that uh, and and Jews remain identifiably Jewish in the midst of that pressure. I want to raise a couple a couple other details, and I'm looking particularly at verses 11 and 12. The curse poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. And I think the overall point is pretty clear that the calamity that comes on Jerusalem and the people of Judah uh, is not a failure of the word of God, but it's actually a fulfillment of the word of God because it's exactly what was written in the law of Moses. But the terminology of oath and the written oath and a curse poured out um, a number of commentators, Jim Jordan, I think, I think James, James, you may point to this in your paper on on Daniel nine point to uh, links, verbal links to numbers five and the jealousy test in, in numbers five, where the woman takes down this, she drinks this water that where a, a curse has been washed off into the water and she drinks down the curse. And then if that has certain effects, then that's a sign of her unfaithfulness. Uh, so there uh, seems to be an, an allusion to a jealousy a ritual behind this. And then the other point I wanted to bring up was verse 12, the last part of verse 12. Under the whole heaven, there's not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem, which uh, in the context, it, it can seem like what, what uh, Daniel is saying is that the calamity of Jerusalem is, is an unprecedented calamity. No city has suffered so much as Jerusalem did. But I think that the I think that in the larger the larger scope of Daniel and biblical history, what's actually unprecedented is maybe the the distance of Jerusalem's collapse, the the distance of their fall. Uh, there are other cities that suffered more, but none had been given so many advantages and blessings and such a you know they're the they're the people who are in covenant with the God of with the God of creation. They're the ones who have been recipients of his prophets. They're the ones who are his his special people, and yet they're the ones who rebel and defy him. So um, I, I take ver- the end of verse twelve not to be about the extent of the disaster, but about the extent of Jerusalem's failure. And it's a sin like the sin of Adam. I mean, uh, it's a it's a mm-hmm. defiance in the face of uninterrupted blessing. And it's it's a transgression against the Lord's kindness, and not just a that exacerbates the sin. That it's a transgression of the Lord's kindness and His covenant. Mm. That brings to mind various things we spoke about last time uh, when we looked at chapter eight. In the Antiochus's crimes um, against Judah are portrayed in these incredibly exaggerated terms. If you just look at uh, history from a secular perspective and think that the fall of one nation is the bad as as bad as the fall of another um but obviously that's not the way um history is, is looked at in these books and and so what happens to judah is is painted in these h- horrific terms um yeah because of the uh privilege and and, and the uh position of, of judah in the first place Th- those terms um curse and oath are actually quite interesting I'm, I'm looking at them here so you know the, the curse is the Allah and the um the oath is the Shru'ah and these are terms that I guess the sound of which um get uh, reinvented later on in that the 
Allah is sort of, I guess, Daniel's appeal to God, El Chai, he re- uh, repeatedly refers to my God, and the Shru'ah obviously becomes the the Shru'im, the the um, the weeks, and so it, it's almost as if these these two terms, you know, the curse and the oath, although they're the problem, um, they become part of the solution, and and that's almost fundamental to what's going on in in the chapter really that um while the law of god is is and the faithfulness of god is is the problem um and explains why israel are in such a mess it's also the solution it's what contains the promises of of restoration thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.